Hello everybody, I'm Christine. And I'm Chido. And in our last episode of Season 4, we talk in hot topics about Sloane Stevens winning the US Open. And also fashion brands taking a stand against eating disorders. And in our topic of the day, we chat with Irvin about toxic masculinity in the black community. And in our last episode, we shine our minority spotlight on former model and founder of Ascension magazine, Sasha Sarago. I don't know if you heard about this, Christine, but according to ABC News, US Open champion Sloane Stevens, who was just last month, was ranked 957th in the world, won the US Open. I thought that was just amazing because it was like, dude, you were 957th in the world and you came out as number one. Yeah, okay, but she was actually she's actually a really good tennis player and she's been ranked historically, I think, maybe like in the 30s. Don't quote me on that. But um, she'd had foot surgery, which is why her ranking was so low for this year. But she's recovered, clearly. I mean, come on, even if you were number 30 <laughs> and you go to number one. No, I, that, think, I think that's a likely... Really? Out- well, not likely outcome, but I think it's a plausible outcome. We see it all the time. Like, you know, yeah, but I mean, I was just like, gee, Serena leaves for two seconds. I know. I think uh, in that interview... Um, the post-game interview or some other interview, I don't know. She said that the biggest difference was that this year she didn't have to play Serena because I think in the past, Serena's been the one who's knocked her out. Who's been knocking everybody out. Yeah. <laughs> so, But they have yeah. really good report, uh, apparently, between her and Serena and the girl she defeated. I forget her name as well, but they all like friends. And yeah, and people are calling her the future of women's tennis. Well, yeah, because like, hello, who's going to fill the void? She is clearly already. Serena is not done yet, okay? Can we not discount her? Well, I don't know. You are just being prejudiced because she's a mother. I'm not being prejudiced. I'm just saying if she decides to retire, she's left the title in capable hands. (laughs) Very capable. Yeah, it was quite interesting. And Sloane's um, 24, so she's not slowing down. She's only going to get better. Only picking up, yeah. yeah. And she's also a black girl, which, you know, I was yeah, like... Yeah, see, that's why she's like, passing okay. down the baton. <laughs> the other girl as well was black, which was interesting. Like, yeah. two black girls in the US Open final who are not Serena and Venus. I was like, yeah, we out here. Yeah, and she's also really funny. I watched her interviews and they were asking her whether she was going to play again. And she's like, do you see the size of that check? (laughs) (laughs) How much is it? Like 3 point something million or something? It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Oh, only 1 million. (laughs) No, that's, that's good. Shout out to her. Swiftly moving on to the next story that I also found on ABC News. They seem to be doing their thing there in journalism. Go ABC. And they were reporting on some uh, French fashion companies, LVMH and Kering, who own brands such as Louis Vuitton, Dior and Gucci. They have taken a step to ban size zero models 
in a, uh, a a move to curb unhealthy eating patterns with models. So they don't want the super skinny models anymore. I had a lot of feelings about this. What did you think about this move that these companies have taken to ban size zero models? Whoa! I mean, I think like modeling in general should be diverse because people are diverse sizes. I don't think anyone should have to, you know, go through the suffering of having an eating disorder. But like, so I think banning size zero is, I don't know, it's a bit odd to say we're banning size zero. As opposed to we're just expanding a range of models because what if someone's naturally really skinny mm. and I mean I'm sure people are like oh skinny shaming is not a thing but it's like it still is a thing like you know so I think they should just expand just say we're expanding our range of models mm. you don't have to starve yourself anymore just be you yes for once we agree on something <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah that that was my initial reaction because um, the French government actually put in a law that models have to submit a health certificate um, which is current for two years so every two years they have to submit a health certificate if they want to get work in France uh, which I think is good I think it's all about being healthy mm. some people are healthy at a size zero some people are healthy at a size eight 14 whatever it is you know um, so I think banning size zero is a bit eh but on the other side very skinny looking people, even if they're naturally like that, if they are in abundance and that is like, you know, what you see the most of on the catwalk, that can send a message to other girls who are not that size that this is what you need to to look like. So yeah, I can see what they're trying to do, but I think they've taken it too far. Yeah. Okay. Well, up next, we've got our topic. Uh, we're talking toxic masculinity. Keep listening. So for our topic for the day, we are joined by my friend Irvine, who I met at the Incubate uh, Foundation Conference 2017. Irvine works as a teacher and is about to complete his training in legal practice. He's also the founder of Eduvine, an organization aimed at providing access to education to children around the world. Hey, Irvine. Hey, guys. How are you? Good. Good. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, Chido told me that you gave a very intriguing speech over at the Incubate conference. Tell us a little bit about the subject of the speech. So um, essentially um, the speech I uh, got the opportunity to give at Incubate was in regards to mental health, particularly um, in the black community. So basically I was trying to explain the impact of mental health um, in regards to us black males. So what got you actually thinking about mental health and specifically uh, mental health in black male population? Was there a trigger that got you thinking about this topic? I bumped into a study that basically showed that um, black men are of, often raised in homes where masculinity is emphasized and men are not really encouraged to talk about their feelings or emotions, which in turn has basically created this I guess, shadow within the black male community and the shadow being mental health and um, lack of mental well-beingness being encouraged. And, you know, 
what what was your reaction when you were listening to the speech well i thought it was very a very topical like subject to talk about especially with this year in particular i feel like well for me personally i've seen a lot more about mental health especially in, in black men being talked about more like with i can't remember which rapper it was there were, but there are a couple of rappers who've brought it to light recently yeah that was um kanye and kick kick Cardi, which was um particularly something that was helped me in the creation of this, I guess, speech. Because I don't know if you remember, um, the, last year there was a campaign online which was called You Good Man. It, it was basically a campaign that involves black men sharing their own stories and tackling the stereotypes regarding our mental health within the black community. And um, uh, the actual campaign was pretty much hailed by, like, I don't know, like, if you know Dr. Watkins? I think she has a journal um, which is called, like, I think, Strength and Weaknesses of Black Men and Mental Health, something along those lines. But she basically um, highlighted the importance of creating welcoming and non-judgmental spaces for black males to discuss their well-beings. And I guess she highlighted um, the importance of the internet because it, it kind of gives black men, I guess, an opportunity to safely disclose the inf information that's about their mental health and have easy access to culturally sensitive mental health resources without actually being judged or being stigmatized for having that um, illness at that given time. Yeah, so I'm also just curious to hear from you, your thoughts on why mental health is so stigmatized in the Black community, especially, it seems like. I don't think it's necessarily something that's stigmatized in uh, European cultures, not sure about Asian cultures uh, so much. Maybe maybe Latin cultures might be similar, uh, particularly with the male machismo narrative there. But just wondering from your perspective, why you think it is that it is something that is so stigmatized in the black community? I guess, in my opinion, like it's something that I guess most people within the black community don't necessarily understand. And it's something that I guess we, as black people, we haven't really been taught about. So I, personally, I don't remember um, being taught about mental health or mental well-being until I started my schooling in Australia. So I can, this is, I guess, my opinion and my, me generalizing. I don't know if, I guess, in Africa as a continent, mental health is something that is pushed within the schooling curriculum. I think the main focus is academic, like maths, science, English, but I don't think there are subjects that are catered towards, I guess, mental health. I know in Australia there's, there are subjects, like there's the health subject that you do from grade 1 to grade 10 that you can, I guess, sort of talk about feelings and then they'll explain to you um, that sometimes you feel sad, sometimes you feel angry, and that is perfectly fine. And that's perf that's a sign of being, I guess, human because we all bruise sometimes. But it, I guess, yeah, you can see, like, like what I was mentioned in my speech, you can see it with the reactions that uh, most African or black communities have when someone has uh, is, I guess, depression or any form of mental health. It's always, let's pray it away. So let's, I guess, take him to like a traditional healer. It's all about the spirits, all, I guess, all about manning up and not willing to, I guess, get assistance. And like what you said earlier, um, yeah, black men are more likely to suffer from mental health without asking for help whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. I definitely concur that there is a lot more emphasis on the religion aspect of let's pray or 
Let's cast out the demons. What I found interesting growing up was like, even from a very young age, it's always like, boys, you can't cry or boys, you can't do this, boys, you can't do that. And then it turns into a lot of like violence and fighting. And you'll be wondering why are people always getting into fights? Why are people like being reckless? And it's just interesting that there was never an in-between to identify what the cause was. It was either you were okay or that you were, you got like sick to a stage where you needed like professional intervention and to be sent to rehabilitation or as you said now going to traditional mediums it's just it's interesting that there's a gap that's just developed between preventing someone progressing to a point where they can't you know be helped yeah yeah that's that's perfectly true because um, I remember when I when I visited Zimbabwe which um I guess I visit the most out of the African countries um there is, I guess, yeah, um, I don't know. Like, in, there are people in Zimbabwe that I like, well, um, this is me assuming that they have something going on, but they might have something going on and they're just roaming the streets. And instead of, I guess, people approaching them and asking them, like, are you okay? Like, what's up? What's going on? People actually laugh at them. I, I don't know if you guys have bumped into that. Like, people actually flat out just laugh. And I don't know if, I guess, that basically, I guess, supports your point that there is a lack of understanding of what happens between the stage of being okay with like quotation marks and being not okay. Like no one understands the middle bit. So it's either you're smiling or you are literally crying. And when you're crying, if you're a boy, it's the response is, I guess, men up. So I guess I, another question would be is like, what would you like to see in like change? So one of the things I feel, I guess, the black community needs to stop saying to, I guess, some individuals who are suicidal or contemplating suicide is that, like, saying, um, by following through with the act of suicide, you're going to upset or hurt your family. I think we all need to stop saying that. That's one thing that I've, that's one reoccurring thing that I've heard within people around me or people I know of who are experiencing this turmoil. Because in my opinion, when people do say that, it basically invalidates and also kind of disempower the person because you're ultimately making them not a vital player in that scenario when it's ultimately about them. Because you're saying, if you do this, you're affecting that person. But the actual problem is there. So we should be just focused on how they feel and how they handle that. The other thing is, I guess we kind of need to create avenues which allow black males to talk and feel safe. And that's something that I'm kind of working on with with my own, I guess, foundation, where I'm just trying to create this community where we can actually share our resources and help each other get through this life thing. And also, I guess, the stigma as well. I think we should start to accept that everyone bruises and everyone should get the opportunity to cry without judgment because that's part of it's an emotion like there are range there's a range of emotions for a reason and everyone kind of has a right to experience crying anger happiness yeah well i think we're coming up to the end of this segment so i just wanted to thank you again for bringing up this very important topic and i find it so interesting because when i was reading your speech there was so much that was going on you know the uh, intersectionality between race culture and gender and how that all plays out is just really interesting to me so thank you so much for 
A, writing the speech, um, and also uh, coming on to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So today in Minority Spotlight, we are so privileged to be chatting with Sasha Sarago. She describes herself as a proud Aboriginal woman of the Wajambara, Yidinji and Jodhapur, rainforest people of Cairns, far north Queensland. She is a former model and founder and editor of Ascension Magazine, Australia's first Indigenous and ethnic women's lifestyle magazine. You can also catch Sasha on the panel for the PINS event coming up, where we at on Wednesday, October 11 at the Melbourne Recital Centre. So welcome to the show, Sasha. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I guess to get us uh, started, how did you first get into modelling? It was really based on um, my lack of confidence as a child. So mum <laughs> put me in a beginner's modelling class when we were living in the States. I was about nine years old. And it was there that I found my passion. As soon as you get on the catwalk, you're just another person. And you hear interviews of Beyonce saying that she transforms into Sasha Fierce. (laughs) And that's exactly what happened with me. It was just a way where the spotlight was on me. I couldn't see anyone. And I could just be this confident young woman who could be anything that she wanted to be. So that's how I got into modeling. Hmm. We have a couple of interesting questions here for you about the fashion industry for some of us who are outsiders (laughs) and we we only hear the news stories about you know like women of color especially having to take their own makeup to sets and you know things of that nature so the fashion industry has gotten quite a bad reputation when it comes to things pertaining to people of color in general so just wondering from your experience how was your experience being an insider in the industry? To be honest, it was a nightmare <laughs> many times because you were sidelined. Well, you know, my personal experience, I was sidelined being a black model. Uh, not a lot of the stylists, the makeup artists, um, the hairdressers knew what they were doing. So it was like, oh, my God, what are we going to do with this black model, put it to the side and we'll strategize and figure out what we're going to do with her. So feeling isolated um, to the fact that you have these fears. Are they going to make me look like Casper, the ghost? Am I going to look ashy? Am I going to look like death? Uh, they don't know how to style um, natural hair. You know, I've got naturally curly hair. So, you know, I'd come up with an afro with no, you know, curl to it and just looking horrible and because you're a model and you're commissioned to sell a product you know sell a collection with clothes by being on the catwalk it's a horrible feeling to feel unpretty inside and Mm. outside um you know look at all these other white models who look so glamorous and you're kind of the off cut um and, and and they don't even flinch they don't even realize that's happening and you have to I guess maybe work above and beyond that um, when you don't have the tools to do your job mm-hmm. by looking apart as a model. And then even when you talk about the industry, like nothing's changed that much, especially in really? Australia. So you've got models who have to make sure that they're on point by bringing their own makeup to shoots and you know having a backup plan if anything goes awry. And that's not... Um, it's not acceptable because of the fact they're getting paid and they should know how to work across all different skin tones and hair textures. 
But that's the reality of it. And it's probably a bit better on the international scale. So Australia has a long way to go as far as you know how they uh, conduct themselves when it comes to models of color in the industry. So did that impact your self-confidence at all? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, because I wanted to be like the white models because they got their attention, they got the products, they got the expertise. And here you are struggling to find, you know, what skin tone works for you. I mean, like, you know, foundation or hair products. And it actually reminds me that there was a time I was working as an extra on The Matrix movies when they were being filmed in Sydney so you know early 20s that was so exciting and to see a whole cast of extras who had skin tone like you or you know they were just people of color was amazing and hand on bible that was the first time that I ever found out like what foundation worked for me because I had an African-American makeup artist and she got her kid out and I was like what is this <laughs> tell me each product here and that's when I got onto Mac and I cannot tell you I rock with Mac for like still to this day yeah. but it saved me in so many areas of my life because as soon as I got that Mac on I was like it's on and popping <laughs> like I am a woman and she took me through like you know what my undertones was and you know what colors worked really well for me and that means a lot as a woman it doesn't matter like if you're a woman of color, non-woman of color, to feel beautiful is something that, you know, we all aspire to in our own way. Yeah. I always said, like, just because, like, your makeup artist, you know, I, I personally saying I, I don't expect them to have every single shade of, like, color that ever is known to man, but at least know how to mix someone's tone appropriately. Like, just telling someone, oh, sorry, you don't have your foundation, I can't help you, it's not good enough. It's an excuse and praise to Rihanna with Fenty Beauty coming out. I've just been reading the reviews and the amount of women worldwide who are like, yo, dark complexion foundation sells. Like, it sells off the shelf. So you guys are liars. (laughs) You're not doing your job. And even locally based, like Clerk Cosmetics, like I'm so excited about this brand where you've got dark shades, you've got light tones, you've got this, you know, natural product that is amazing by these three, you know, women of color who mm. seen a gap in the industry and was like, look, I'm tired of looking like a vampire, <laughs> a, a black vampire, mind you. Ashy. <laughs> Anybody got time to be ashy? And so they're making the difference because there's just so many excuses or uh, so many uh, times where you try to get the ear of brands or companies to make them see. They're not set up and designed to see you. Therefore, they're not going to make products or you know, stock a line for you. And I think you know, a lot of us has realized that and said, you know what, well, we're going to re- like invest in ourselves. Right. Yeah. Okay, so I guess let's talk about Ascension Magazine. What was your inspiration and your intent when you founded the magazine? Because I had no representation of myself in this country, I would import magazines from overseas. So the Essence, the Ebony magazines. And I realized, like, hang on, we don't have a magazine for women of color here in Australia. And I did my research and I was like, actually, yeah, that is true. (laughs) There's no other magazine out there. And 
that's what inspired me to create Ascension. I was like, I need to create this platform. You know, I want to read stuff that makes sense to me. I want to learn more about women of color in this country um, in a unique way because mm. our identity and experience is very unique. It's distinct from the rest of the world. And it's really hard to, I guess, lump ourselves into the maybe black American or the UK experience or Canadian experience. It's not going to be that. It's going to be an Australian experience. And I really wanted the world to know about Australian women of colour. You know, being a woman who's Aboriginal, African-American, Malay, Mauritian and Spanish, like I wanted people to know that Aboriginal people, we're not all living in the bush. We've got, you know, beautiful women of all different skin tones. You know, we have this, you know, journey that we're going through of redefining ourselves, especially in a country where we have a lot of social and political issues that we're still unraveling. Right. (laughs) Trying to come to terms with, you know, there is a black history. So what better way to create a platform where we can control that narrative and see ourselves? That is so amazing. And the magazine is popping. I really like the graphics on the website. It's absolutely beautiful. Definitely everyone should check it out. It's ascensionmag.com. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about the journey of actually setting up Ascension. What were some of the barriers that you faced in doing so? Starting from scratch (laughs) was a big barrier to get people on board to understand the concept. There was a lot of support, definitely. But I initially had the idea I wanted to be digital online. But as you talk to other people and you get influenced, uh, it turned into, you know, striving for a print magazine. Going into the print industry, oh my God, that's a lot. You need to have money, you know, to print, say, a thousand copies. You're looking at either 10 to 30 grand. Really? So that's where the advertising comes in. And, you know, scheduling content, contributors, like a full media empire. That's what you're looking at. So I was like, what what the hell am I doing? I can't do this. And so I just like came back to my original vision. And I thought, okay, I always wanted it to be online because I could see just how digital technology is going to take over the world. The way that it connects us to other people of color um, around the world is amazing. The fact that we can get our stories or our issues on the radar of other people, that's the way to go. Like, I just wanted to, you know, navigate in the most quickest, most easiest way of getting our stories out there. So I delved into doing um, like a digital app store as well. That was super expensive. Never do that again. (laughs) I learned, put something out that's small, you know, test the waters, see if people are going to respond to it. Like I'm this person that wants to get out there and just have all the bells and whistles in business. That's probably not smart. (laughs) And, And really using your network. One thing for me that I've learned as an entrepreneur is the fact that I don't know how to ask for help. And it's scary to put yourself out there and go, um, you seem to you know, have some really great skills and talents. Let's work together. So I guess the whole journey of it, the upside of it has been collaboration and knowing who my community is and connecting with them. So that's why Ascension is where it's at at the moment. But I guess the biggest barrier for me was working independently. Like there was no one else on my team. So I just needed to like expand my mind and start off small. Ooh, you are dropping so many knowledge bombs, right? <laughs> I just keep nodding. Yeah, no, because 
you bring up the point of asking for help and knowing when to do that, it can be scary because there's also, I feel, there's pressure to look like you know what you're doing all the time and you can't let people see your vulnerabilities. So did you ever struggle with that? All the time. There'll be times where I feel confident enough to say, I don't know what I'm doing. But those times you know, early in the journey, I was met by people who didn't have the best intentions for me. They'd get on board and be like, I love what you're doing. And it was like all to get their chips in, you know, to win something for themselves. And then they'd sort of make me feel like I didn't know what I was doing and like chip at me and make me second guess myself. Like at the end of the day, I enabled that and I allowed that because I was like young in the game, so to say. After I took a step back and go, yo, I know what I'm doing <laughs> and yeah. see people who, who they are. And then there was like that middle period where I, I couldn't trust anyone. I was vulnerable. I didn't know who was on my team. And I was like, no, I have to present myself in a way that I've got my ish together. And, you know, when you're on Instagram and you're running a business and you're seeing other people in your field or who you admire, it's very intimidating. So you just don't want to be like going over them and saying, hey, can we collaborate? And you don't even have your, you know, back of house. <laughs> flowing like it should be and to let people know because you don't want them to infiltrate and take ideas and you know there's a lot of intellectual property that comes into it but you know intuition is the key like that's your asset it'll never leave you and if you don't want to do something or a deal or a collaboration ain't feeling right just don't do it but at the end of the day like be honest you need help ask for help I guess on that, um, what are your future aspirations for Ascension as a whole? I'm going to change it from a magazine to a media company. So for the last few years, we've been doing documentaries, web series. Uh, that's where I'm most passionate about. Like I definitely have a platform or you, if you want to say a magazine or written narrative for Australian women of colour. But I really want to go global because of the fact that strike while the iron is hot I just feel it (laughs) people are so receptive to you know our stories and you know a lot of the mainstream media companies like SBS like merging with Viceland and you know Guardian working with Indigenous X they need those narratives the way that they're structured it's they're not capturing that so I'm putting it out there I'm manifesting that on the air it's very much needed you know, I'm doing this for, I'm going to say if I have kids, but, you know, I've got nieces and nephews. I've got eight of them, you know, and, you know, just yesterday I got a you know, picture sent to me via my sister and it was my niece and she was like, what's the character? I think it's Princess and the Frog. Mm-hmm. She, Tiana. representation yeah. matters. It does. She, yeah. we couldn't, like, like, they couldn't find the costume, so they made it up. And I said to her, you don't need to find the costume. You are a princess and the frog. You are a young, beautiful black girl, and you rock your princess dress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So just having that imagery, those stories, those narratives, like, it's important for us, our generation, but seriously, we need to get, you know, our next generation in the forefront ready Mm-hmm. So true. That actually reminds me of one of my friends. He has a, a daughter. She's black. And um, yeah, he was explaining to me that she goes nuts when Dora the Explorer comes on. And he's like, I think it's because she's brown. <laughs> <laughs> I was yes, like, really? Yes, 
Dwight was very entertaining Moana, too. Moana. Seriously, <laughs> yeah. I had the girls with their little karaoke. They were teaching me how to sing it. It was great. And they had the skirts out and everything. It's like, you know, that brown, black girl magic. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, I don't remember having any brown princesses when I was growing up. Yeah, and that's the other thing. I was thinking about the other day. Um, when you did have a black character, sometimes their like personality or what they stood for wasn't quite what you connected with. But you connected with them anyway because it was like the only yeah. black okay, character. Well, I, I think it was like Josie and the Pussycats or something. I don't know. And there was a few others. And I was like, oh, okay. And then even when you're playing with your friends and sometimes, you know, it might be like, you know, white people or, you know, whoever you're playing with and they're not black, you automatically get lumped into that character. I'm like, yeah. no, I want to be the lead character. But they're looking at you like, you're black. Like, you can't be that. And so even as a kid, you started to get like ranked into, okay, who you're going to be representing or who you identify with. And it's, it's interesting. So yeah, we have some way to go with these characters. Yeah. So I think, um, that's, that's all the time we got actually. Thank you so much, Sasha, for oh, such a great interview. I feel like I could talk to you forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I had a ball. It was so much fun. Well, that's it for today's show. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Continue to send in your messages to sassyinoz.sos at gmail.com. Also, make sure to hit the subscribe button in iTunes and please leave us a five-star rating. Thanks for listening and until next time, bye. bye.